You're tuned to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Two incidents in two weeks' time. A Chinese warship gets dangerously close to a U.S. carrier in the Taiwan Straits as the State Department works to strengthen ties in the Pacific where we have naval interests. You may um, not be aware of the State Department's Bureau of Global Public Affairs Office. Assistant Secretary Bill Bill Russo stopped in town this weekend en route to Fiji and New Zealand. Saturday, Russo met with officials at the East-West Center as well as from the University of Hawaii. That followed a day-long briefing on the Hill at Camp Smith with Indo-Pacific military officials. Russo explained his trip this way. It's so important and crucial to our foreign policy and to our the work of our public diplomacy that we are trying to do in telling the story of American diplomacy in the world. And so looking at heading out into the region, going to Fiji and New Zealand, it was also incredibly important to me to stop here first in Hawaii, both to help learn and understand. I spent the day yesterday at Indo-PACOM with our Department of Defense colleagues, in addition to this morning's uh, session at the University of Hawaii and the East-West Center, but also because a really important part of the work that we do is trying to make American foreign policy a little bit less foreign to the American people. And so looking to uh, to engage uh, with the local community here to help understand how we are telling that story, how we need to do a better job of telling that story in some cases, uh, and, and making the case for why things that may happen thousands or even tens of thousands of miles away have a huge impact here uh, on our lives and on our people, and, and, and why being engaged on these issues is, is so important for each and every one of us. The administration has renewed its focus on the Pacific because of the growing tensions in this area. I don't know what you heard from Cap Smith about what we need to work on and what are the areas of concern with New Zealand and Fiji where we have, you know, strategic military interests. You know, there were two things that really struck me about uh, the visit at Indo-PACOM. First was the, the presence of our allies physically there. In the meetings that I had yesterday throughout the day, I think I had more opportunity to speak to Aussies and Kiwis and Brits and French and Korean and Japanese allies uh, who are there embedded on the ground working side by side with American service members than I would have expected. And so it was a really tangible, visible reflection of the importance of our alliances uh, to all of the work that we are doing. Uh, And the other thing that really struck me was, you know, for all of the focus on, on the hard power and for the big challenges that we face. Uh, A lot of the conversation that was happening was focused around humanitarian assistance and disaster relief, uh, particularly looking at Guam uh, in the wake of the cyclone that had come through there. And so it was also a good reminder that for all of the focus on uh, our strategic competition with the People's Republic of China and for a lot of the geopolitical issues that we are focused on, there is a really big and important focus on focusing on our partners, focusing on ourselves, and focusing on the, the softer influence that we can have on the region that I think pays really big dividends years and years down the line and I think is also a very good answer to people who you know question you know what the value of our presence here is and what we actually seek to do in the region the concern out there for Pacific Islanders is you know conflict and climate mm-hmm. you know because we are more vulnerable than most places and the US has tried to put some funding toward that area to help a lot of these island nations. Absolutely. Our colleagues at the U.S. Agency for National Development have just put uh, over $100 million in the region into climate resilience specifically because obviously it's a, it's a hugely important and very real and present 
issue. But likewise, uh, we, are, we, the U.S. government, are currently working with Congress to find an additional more than $7 billion of funding uh, for the region, particularly for the Compact of Free Association states. So I think we, whether it's unilaterally uh, in the executive branch or, of course, working very closely with Congress uh, for future appropriations, are trying to do everything we can to make a really significant financial investment broadly in the region. And I know a, a very key component to that is, uh, is climate mitigation and, and climate preparedness because you know, at the same time, again, as we just saw in, in Guam, at the same time as that sea level, uh, sea level is rising and weakening our defenses uh, to climate, uh, we are also seeing climate change worsening the impact of storms uh, as well. And so it's really kind of a, a one-two punch that we need to be even more prepared and more resilient to handle. And that means making real serious investments in the region as a partner to help countries uh, prepare for it. Is there anything you can share with us about the negotiations with the compact? Well, obviously, we, we just had uh, signing our uh, Joe Yoon, our, our ambassador, who's been doing incredible work there. And I know work is underway with the Marshall Islands, and uh, we, we, we hope to be able to, to announce uh, something in the near future. I don't have anything specific to, to, to share, uh, insight to share on that at this point in time. But we, we've seen incredible progress uh, of late, and, and we're very hopeful that, uh, that we'll get to the finish line. We are looking at pulling the Marines out of Okinawa. We've got the buildup in Guam. We are going to be getting some of those uh, soldiers here as well in Hawaii. What are your thoughts on the tensions with the military? I mean, we've got the situation with Red Hill that I'm sure you're aware of, and and the the concern that if the military makes a mess, it's got to clean up. No, absolutely, and you know, I've uh, I would defer in the particulars of a lot of that to uh, to my colleagues at the Department of Defense, but more broadly, you know, in, in the region, I will say, you know, with the recent signing of the Defense Cooperation Agreement with Papua New Guinea, with some of the other developments underway, and as I mentioned, you know, with with the incredible burden sharing and investment that we are seeing with our partners and allies, I, I think I do see broadly throughout the region an interest in. You know, the United States helping secure the region, and and again working towards what we could say, refer to as a, an open and free Indo-Pacific. So I think the the value of American security cooperation, along with of course American economic cooperation, uh, of course along with the thing that I'm particularly focused on, which is you know American cultural and educational cooperation, uh, throughout the region I think we see an incredible importance to it, and obviously uh, the work that is happening to help facilitate that here in Hawaii. Uh, is 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 really essential to it. So we, you know, we 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 see the value in that cooperation uh, on the on the diplomatic side. Anything specifically with New Zealand and the the military bases there? I don't have anything on on the military basing to say uh, on New Zealand. I will say, you know, from from where I sit, I'm incredibly excited to to get there because uh, New Zealand's a, a really valuable partner for us on reaching the Pacific, on uh, on engaging in in media freedom and in the media space, and in providing open access to, to to truthful information in the region. And so that's that is going to be the particular focus for uh, for my trip there, meeting with Pacific Media Network and others at Radio New Zealand, and uh, who are who are doing really important work to ensure that throughout the region there is uh, there is access to free open and independent media. And folks may not know much about your office, but uh, I just know, let's say in the last six months, I've just seen the number of news releases from the military agencies come out about reinforcing the value and what they contribute 
to our community? I guess when, when you go out to these places, what's at the forefront of your mind? You know, I think the State Department has a really great story to tell about uh, what we were able to do uh, here in Hawaii. You know, in, in fiscal year 2022, uh, the Department of State issued more than 73,000 passports uh, for residents of Hawaii. Uh, every year, uh, the, our economic officers that are serving in our embassies and consulates all around the world are seeking to bring foreign direct investment here to create jobs here. And our estimates are that that foreign direct investment supports about 39,000 jobs on the ground here in Hawaii. And since I'm sitting at the University of Hawaii right now, um, you know there are more than 300 students who are participants in our academic exchanges who come here to Hawaii every year. And there are dozens of students here who are able to travel abroad and learn somewhere else through one of our academic uh, exchanges and programs here. So I, I think part of part of my job, part of the reason I'm here, part of the reason I'm speaking with you uh, right now is to try and, and, and tell that story of the value that American diplomacy and the State Department can bring to the people of Hawaii, even if uh, even if it's not quite as, as necessarily as present or real in people's everyday lives as they, as they might know. Well, Mr. Russo, thank you so much. We appreciate your time and safe travels. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. That was Bill Russo of the U.S. Bureau of Global Public Affairs talking about diplomacy in the Pacific. Uh, the White House renewed a pledge to strengthen ties in the Pacific where the U.S. has strategic interests and where recent incidents near China's borders in the sky and on the high seas have turned our attention to the Indo-Pacific region. Reminder, this is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your backyard quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. If you've ever been stuck in traffic on on Oahu, you have seen firsthand how many vehicles are on island. Everything from large semi-trucks transporting goods to buses to the popular Toyota Tacoma that everyone seems to have, all the way down to motorcycles and mopeds and more. According to the state, there were over 1.2 million cars registered in Hawaii in 2019. For some, it's a representation of status. For others, it's just a way to get from point A to point B. But for everyone, it means freedom to travel around the island. Today, cars are just as ingrained in daily life as they are in the rest of the country. And we're just as up-to-date on the latest trends as they are. As recently as 2017, Hawaii had the second highest rate of electric vehicles per 1,000 residents in the country, second only to California. So it may not surprise you that the automobile era in Hawaii started with a vehicle that did not run on gas. For today's Backyard Quiz, what was the first car to arrive in Hawaii? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets an HPR reusable tote bag.
Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nairit Hawaii and its Community Giving Initiative. Learn more about how this program is supporting nonprofits focusing on affordable housing projects at nairithawaii.com. summer travel season officially kicked off Memorial Day weekend. The Transportation Security Administration screened 9.8 million travelers over the four-day holiday at more than 430 airports nationwide. What does this mean for Hawaii? Well, expect more inbound visitors and outbound traffic as Hawaii residents fly to the continent and other international destinations. Be prepared for busy security checkpoints. Surprise, surprise. Hawaii TSA spokesperson Lori uh, Danker sat down with the conversation's Lillian Song to share summer travel tips. I like to point out to people that only 50% of your trips start at your home airport. The other half of your trip is going to start somewhere else where you may be less familiar with their processes and procedures, where you may be less familiar with sort of that regular cadence of the airport. Here in Honolulu, our peak times are really 10 to 2 and 5 to 8 p.m. Well, at most airports on the mainland, the busiest times are really about 5 a.m. to 8 or 9 a.m. because so many of those flights leave early so they can get back to the East Coast, you know, late in the afternoon or people get a jump on their day. And so if you have a flight back from, let's say, Seattle or L.A., uh, Dallas, and you think it's going to be quiet in the morning and you show up at 630 in the morning, you're literally going to see tens of thousands of people in the airport with you. Now, in the mainland, the vast majority of travelers, usually up to a third, have come through security by 9.30 to 10 a.m., the full day's travel volume, all in that short period of time. And so that's why it is so busy. And then the rest of the day, people are coming to the checkpoint. It remains busy, but just not that crush that you get. But if you're unaware of that and you show up and think you're going to cut it close, you, in fact, may end up not making your flight because of the volume of travelers. Now, we as an agency make a commitment to make sure that we have our checkpoints fully staffed. We have those lanes open during the peak time, but sometimes it takes just a little more than that, and that is people arriving early, especially when you're unfamiliar with what may be going on at that airport. And one thing that really seems to help travelers get through security faster are those programs like TSA PreCheck. Will anything change for travelers enrolled in TSA PreCheck this time around? Yeah, so just last week, we announced a major change, and it's a change that's going to impact families primarily. We used to allow children 12 and under who were on the same itinerary with their parent or guardian to go in the TSA pre-check lane with that parent or guardian. They did not have to enroll separately. We've expanded the population that it can now go through with a parent or guardian. Now it is anyone 17 and younger can go through with that parent or guardian on the same itinerary. Now, this is great news because it keeps those families together. It adds the number of people who are eligible for TSA PreCheck, which is a streamlined and quicker security experience. And, of course, if you have a a 13, 14, 15-year-old, you don't have to go enroll them in PreCheck. Now, to enroll in PreCheck, it's a $78 application fee, but it's good for five years. And so that's great news if you go ahead and enroll in that, and then you can take your other family members through you're going to find that it's going to make your travels easier this summer and also for the next five years. Now, once people turn 18, they need to apply and have their own eligibility. The change was prompted by the fact that we did a risk-based review. We determined that people who are 17 and younger are low-risk security threats. They're going through with other members of their family 
and that's why we expanded that population. So that's a change. It's something that a lot of people don't know about yet, but the next time you travel, if you have someone in that age group, you're going to see that and be able to take advantage of it. It's really a win for families. In my own personal circle, I can count family trips to the continent. I even have a family going abroad to Australia, so I'm quite jealous. <laughs> it's time yeah. to travel. And, you know, we have students coming home for the summer as well, but I imagine a higher volume of travelers also means with it a higher risk of security breaches. What kind of measures does TSA have in place right now to keep travelers safe? Yeah, so here in Honolulu, we have several things, actually. The first one is we have our explosive detection canine. We have several of those who are assigned to work at the airport at Daniel K. In a way, international. And you'll find them working in the security checkpoint. What they do is they are trained to detect explosives or explosive residue. They work in the security checkpoint by screening travelers. The travelers will walk by the dogs. And because of their special skills, they're able to determine if there's any explosive residue on those travelers. We know that most travelers are low risk. And so by having them go by a dog, it qualifies that traveler for a different screening experience. It's sort of an unpredictable modification as to what that screening experience may be. A lot of people will be screened by a dog and then they'll come back later and say, you know, I didn't have to take off my shoes this time. I don't know what's different. Did they forget to ask me to remove my shoes? The answer is they didn't forget to ask you. The answer is that, in fact, the canine has cleared you for a different level of screening. So when the dogs are working, that makes our operation more efficient. It's an added layer of security. And of course, if you're like me and a dog lover and you see that dog working, a big smile on your face as well. Those dogs play an important role. Like I said, they're an added layer of security. They're in addition to the other pieces of our program, our operation that are in place. Now at H&L, we have the TSA pre-check lanes. We have checkpoints that are dedicated to general screening those non-TSA pre-check screen passengers. And then when you get to the checkpoint itself, we have some new equipment in place. And one of the units we have is called a computer tomography x-ray scanner. It creates a 3D x-ray image of the contents of the carry-on bag. It allows our officer to get a closer view, a better view of the contents of the bag, and they can resolve potential security threats on screen without a bag check. Now, that's great if you're a traveler because who likes to have someone in their bag, right? Mm. And of course, for our officers, it's great because they can do fewer bag checks with it because they also don't enjoy going into people's personal property, but they have no choice to do that if it looks like there could be a security threat. So with that in mind, we have one of those units is in checkpoint three. And so if you're coming through the airport and through the checkpoint and a TSA officer tells you to leave everything in your bag, which is what you can do when your items are screened through this special scanner, follow their direction, It'll save you time, makes it easier for you, better for our officers, and, of course, a better overall experience for everyone. The reality is right now we're using what would be our existing, our 2D X-ray systems, replacing those with the 3D X-ray systems. So what travelers will see is one or the other. I don't expect a traveler to be able to identify it when they see it, but they can listen to what the TSA officer is telling them so they know what they need to do if it's their property is screened. I was in the checkpoint yesterday where I was watching the officers working at that CT scanner. Travelers were grateful to be able to leave everything in their bag. It just was so much easier for them. So once again, listening to the officer's directions will help you because once again, you might be asked to do less and doing less saves everybody time. Knowledge is power. And so Lori, just reviewing this new scanner only available at checkpoint three. 
That is correct at this point. Now, we have it also in Lahui. We have the entire checkpoint is outfitted with these 3D scanners. We have one at Kona. We have one at Maui and also in Hilo. And we're pleased to have those throughout our operation because, once again, clearer view of the bag, fewer bag checks. So travelers will encounter it at our airport, and we intend to add more of these units. TSA has just procured more of these units, and some of those will be coming to Hawaii in the future. I don't have the exact timeline, but watch for them. And I'm excited to have that. It is great for our operation here. Another thing I like to remind people of is when our body scanners, that's the the unit that you step in and you put your hands over your head. That body scanner is not a metal detector. It, in fact, uses radio waves to bounce off of the body and to determine if items are concealed on the body or in their clothing. And so it can detect metallic and non-metallic items. Great for security because that way, if somebody did try to conceal something, the technology would alert our officer to that. But it is not a metal detector. And that's why when they tell you to remove everything from your pockets, even something like a tissue, a wallet, all of that would alarm the technology, would require a targeted pat-down of the area that alarms. You can avoid that altogether by removing everything from your pockets, remove everything from any area where you might have something concealed or for transport. The best way to get through security quickly is not to alarm the technology. And so it's really up to the traveler. We ask people just please take the items out of your pockets, secure them in your carry-on so you don't leave them behind. And then once you get through the checkpoint, you can return them to your pockets or however you want to travel with them. But that's something to keep in mind. I can't tell you the number of times I'll be in the security line and I'll see someone in front of me and they'll say, make sure your cell phone's out of your pocket. They go through the body scanner, what's in their pocket? Their cell phone. Because they're so used to having it on their person that they forget that it's there. So please just take a few minutes, realize what you have on your on your person, remove it, and then you'll be on your way quickly because it won't alarm. Really great reminders, Lori. But what happens to all the stuff that gets confiscated? Like oh. <laughs> favorite Swiss That's Army a great knife. Question. So when travelers bring items that are prohibited in carry-on luggage, whether it's knives, martial arts items, tools, other things like that, I call those our metals and sharps. We collect those in the security checkpoint. They go in a locked bin, and then our logistics teams periodically pick them up. They box them up, and they are surplus to the Hawaii State Surplus Agency. Then they'll auction them off online. Now, let's say people bring things like sunscreen and shampoos and lotions and bottles of water. Disappointingly, those items are put in the trash. They're not recycled because we don't have staff to go through and empty and clean those bottles to put in recycling. And so it's really something that I want people to think about. And that's why I tell people before you leave home, check your bag. Make sure you're not bringing liquids over 3.4 ounces. Because if you bring that to the checkpoint, it's going to end up in the trash. And no one likes to hear that. No one likes to see that. And no one likes to be the cause of that. But now that you know, hopefully I've educated some people on what happens to those. And that will serve as that reminder for not letting that happen. So really just follow the rules. Exactly. And did you know that the liquid restriction in terms of only being able to bring 100 milliliters, that 3.4 ounce quantity, that rule went into effect in 2006. It's not new. It's been around for years. A great travel tip is unpack your bag entirely before you pack it. You may have something in that bag that, A, you didn't know was there because it's secured in a side pocket. Our officers find it. And then you say, darn, I didn't know that was in there. So unpack that bag completely then pack things that are allowed. If you don't know what's allowed, the good news is TSA has a lot of online resources. My favorite one is our Ask TSA account on Twitter and on Facebook. 
you can take a picture of an item and you can send it to the Ask TSA account and in near real time, they will respond to you and tell you how to travel with that. Mm. All right. And anything else that you want to share with our listeners before we say goodbye? All I would say is that, you know, a lot of times people are worried that when they travel, especially during the summer months or the holidays, those peak travel times, that they're going to get to the security checkpoint and there's going to be a long line. I can tell you that TSA is fully staffed. We work with airlines and airports to project the number of travelers who need to be screened throughout the day, hour by hour, and we staff accordingly. So we are staffed and ready for people to travel in record numbers this summer, and that's our commitment to the traveling public, and we would just ask the travelers to be good partners with us in security by coming early to the checkpoint, by coming prepared, and we wish everybody very safe travels, great times planning their trips, and of course, when it's time to travel, we will be there for you. That was Hawaii TSA spokesperson Lori Dankers and HPR's Lillian Song going over summer travel tips. To help with packing, Dankers suggests downloading the My TSA app and using the What Can I Bring feature. We'll share links on the conversation page at Hawaii Public Radio later today. Support for HPR comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company serving the island since 2005, committed to providing personal service to each customer, featuring a locally-based customer care team. Learn more at Mobi.com. Today on The Daily, Christina Goldbaum traveled across Afghanistan to talk to women about their lives two years after the Taliban took power. What she found is not what she expected. I'm Sabrina Tavernisi. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Beginning this afternoon at 1.30. Support for HPR comes from Ala Moana Hotel by Mantra, offering rooms and suites with ocean, mountain, and city views, and a lobby featuring a backdrop of Hawaii's flora by local artist Kamea Hadar. Reservations at alamoanahotel.com. Our reality check today with our partners at Honolulu Civil Beat takes a closer look at efforts to rein in over tourism. Reporter Brittany Light joins us today from Kauai. Good morning, Brittany. Good morning. So what's going on over there at the, on the Garden Isle? Yeah, so, you know, this is something that would uh, have an effect here on Kauai, but also statewide. And, and what it is is, um, you know, lawmakers this session passed legislation that uh, is awaiting uh, Governor Josh Green's signature or his veto. So it's in limbo right now. But what the legislation does is it creates a new process for issuing state ocean recreation commercial use permits, which is a, a long, <laughs> convoluted way of saying, you know, sightseeing boat tours, surf schools, kayaking companies, scuba, scuba diving uh, companies, all of these uh, businesses that operate out of our harbors and our launch ramps statewide. Um, so this new system would sort of 
address the problem that's been compacting over the years where the number of permits issued at our different harbors in some places it's higher than a newer limit put in place. For example, at Kikiaola Harbor on Kauai's west side, there's a 10 permit cap on the number of um, permits that, that can be there. Um, however, there are about 25 permits in use right now. So the agency is trying to come up with a way that they can be as fair as possible in figuring out how to correct this imbalance. Well, I, I'm scratching my head because if there was a, a, a limit, then why did DLNR uh, keep issuing permits? Yeah, and so the way it's been explained to me from folks at DLNR is, you know, the agency has long had a, um, you know, qualifications. Here's what you need to do in order to get a permit. If you can meet all of these requirements, you've got it. And, you know, around 2014, it came to the attention of the agency that, okay, we need to to start capping the number of limits. But, you know, the process of doing that, creating a new rule, it can take years. And so uh, when folks sort of got word that the agency was looking to put in a cap, a lot of people started applying for permits, right? And so it kind of created this situation where the agency, uh, you know, their lawyers said, you know, you really have to keep, you know, allowing people to get permits by your old protocol until you officially to new protocol. Um, so, so that rule has changed, but it's just, you know, they haven't had the attrition that they thought they might have. Uh, you know, when folks don't want to operate their company anymore, they sell it. These, are, these permits are valuable. These companies are valuable. Uh, so they haven't really been able to just naturally see those numbers whittle down. So, yeah, it remains to be seen then what the governor's going to do. But, you know, uh, if there are businesses then that get shut out of these permits? I mean, what happens to them? Yeah, and so I spoke with, you know, a few business owners on Kauai, and some of them have been operating as long as, you know, a 10 years, a dozen years. Uh, one of them said, hey, a couple days ago, I just bought a new boat for my company. You know, I'm, I'm in escrow on a couple of acres to sort of create more parking for my customers and to store my boat. You know, these people reinvest in their companies all the time, and they're doing it right now. So this legislation has caught a lot of them off guard. A lot of them are worried, you know, they're going to lose their, their business. Some of them, you know, have dozens of employees. So the trickle-down effect could be quite large. And, and what the DLNR wants to do is they want to look at the companies who've been operating the longest and, you know, have a hierarchy in that way. Those folks will be able to keep their permits until they get to the limit. So, so the newer companies are the ones that face potentially losing the permit. And so what's happening uh, on the other island, just say on the big island? Yeah, so, you know, on the big island, there are issues in certain places where, you know, there are just so many surf schools in the water. Um, you know, there's a four limit, four permit limit for surf schools. Um, uh, on the Big Island on Kahulu'u Bay. But right now there's more than a dozen surf schools operating. So that's another place that the DLNR really wants to correct that imbalance. And we've been hearing lots of stories about the uh, manta ray viewing, uh, how crowded it gets over there. So yeah, lots of issues uh, that, that the state will be able to hopefully manage better with this tool in the toolbox. Exactly. 
Well, uh, and then I, I imagine that would apply here on o Oahu as well. So I guess we'll all be waiting to see what the governor does. Uh, but yeah, yeah, obviously. there would be implications statewide. So yeah. uh, we're all just waiting to see what the governor does at this point. Okay. All right. Well, thanks so much, Brittany. Thank you. That was reporter Brittany Light with today's reality check. You can read her story online at civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from the Chamber of Sustainable Commerce, a network of businesses striving to sustain workers, communities, and the environment, with a June 8th Pauhana mixer on Kauai at Napali Brewing Company. Chamber of Sustainable Commerce.org. HPR Generation Listen invites you to Trivia Night every first Monday of the month at Village Bottle Shop and Tasting Room in Kaka'ako. It's an opportunity to connect with fellow public radio nerds in an evening of lively but friendly competition. Gen Listen connects younger listeners and young at heart listeners with the station and with each other. Connect with us in person at HPR Gen Listen Trivia. Sign up to play at hawaiipublicradio.org slash genlisten. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art. The new exhibition, Animals in Japanese Art, features works from HOMA's permanent collection rich in animal imagery and cultural associations. HonoluluMuseum.org. The city is days away from taking control over half of Honolulu's rail system. That happens at the end of the week. But this past Friday, transportation officials hosted a couple of dozen members of the disabled community to get feedback about accessibility on the train and its stations. Patrick uh, Pricer is the operations chief. He previously worked at Portland's rail system. We had a large group. Uh, they were excited to be out here, and we were able to spend a lot of time great questions that were asked today and they got to see firsthand the accessibility features of our system and, and uh, there was a lot of positive feedback on how accessible um, our system is. And so what did we have to do to prepare? I, I mean, I, I know one of the gentlemen we talked to said that there are these international symbols that show you where the seating is, you know, if, if you're in a wheelchair. Yeah, so there's been a lot of thoughtfulness that were, that's been put into the design and implementation of the system. So we've used all of the industry best standards and, of course, in compliance with all laws and regulations and whatnot. We saw some of those features firsthand. An example would be uh, if you're on the platform level and a train comes in, you can see icons, as you mentioned, that show where the accessible seating is for somebody who's using a wheelchair. So you can actually see that from, from outside the train and, and that will help you navigate. And then once you get familiar with the train cars and the configuration, you know, it's really easy to use uh, moving forward as well. Because every train is the same, same configuration. So it's, it's really uh, ease of use from that point. 
And have we buttoned down like the timing of the doors, uh, how long they stay open so that, you know, depending on the crowds and if you're in a wheelchair, you can get on in time. Sure, yeah, so we have a very sophisticated automatic train control system and there's not really one set dwell time at the stations. It ranges uh, anywhere from 20 seconds to 28 seconds and it really depends on how timely the train is operating. But the system itself is, uh, takes into consideration all of the aspects that it would need to, to, to properly allow customers to board and then get off trains at stations. So it shouldn't be a problem. Okay, so I was on a train yesterday very briefly because the doors were, were timed to close, like we could only stay on for like 20 seconds, but it's sure, gonna be sure. much longer than that. Yeah, so uh, it really depends on the particular station, but for the most part, those dwells that, that are programmed into the system are the standard. So we can always uh, reconfigure and adjust if for some reason we find that you know dwells need to be increased or shortened at a, you know the range. Uh, we can always make those adjustments to the system. I happened to be on a train in Italy and a boy's arm got caught, the doors closed on it, and the patrons had to pry it open. I mean, what, what do we have to avoid something like that? Yeah, well, first of all, so sorry to hear about that unfortunate incident. Uh, you know, again, we're very proud to say that we have kind of the latest and greatest technology. So our passenger vehicle doors are outfitted with safe, uh, sensitive door edges. So in a situation that you just described, if somebody had a, a body part and, and the door was actually closing, that sensitive safety edge would bump up against that and it would actually um, cause the door to, to open again. And then if, if that happened like three consecutive times, uh, there would be an alarm message and the door would actually stay open. I did somebody hear- to physically come in and reset that fall. I did hear a message, you know, don't stand in the doorway, something to that effect, uh, or it won't close? Yeah, so just like if you're at home, we encourage people not to put themselves in, in any kind of uh, vulnerable situations. We want uh, customers to be respectful of everyone else. We want the trains to run timely. So to the, uh, to the extent possible, we would definitely encourage no one to lean against the door, no one to intentionally obstruct the door or hold the door, or do anything that would uh, potentially delay someone's uh, trip. I guess the only thing that I would add is there is so much excitement for riding the train. So, uh, you know, we have the grand opening weekend coming up, you know, here on the June 30th at 2 p.m. And then it's going to extend into the weekend and then passenger service beyond. So we would certainly encourage everybody and their family members to come out and, and ride firsthand. It's a beautiful system. The community has a lot to be proud of. And we're just we're just happy to be part of it. Okay. I know the gentleman we talked to said he was going to wait till the crowd thinned out before he got in in order to jump on the train. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, that's just a personal preference. I think there's going to be lots of trains operating all day long, so I don't, you know, we wouldn't expect that the lines would be too too long for anybody, and, and we really think it'd be worth the wait. Okay. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Appreciate it. We also talk with potential riders about their feedback. For the disabled community, the rail line will offer an alternative to the handyman or bus, and once it's completely built out, it will expand their reach in the community. Dean is visually impaired, and he offered his take following the tour. This uh, tour was great. It was a great way to go to see how the system is set up as far as accessibility for somebody who's blind like myself uh, and able to access the different features that everybody else would want in terms of approaching the, the station, to be able to get into the uh, station with the uh, with the cars through the uh, entrance area, 
get up to the different levels. You know, what are the levels? How are they, um, you know, where are they located? What their purpose is? How the stations are designed? All the way down to the tactile braille labeling and how it works. So what'd you think? I thought for the most part, it's a, it's a good experience. I did notice a couple of things that maybe uh, in time could be improved. But that's typical of anything uh, done initially. You know, you sometimes have things that evolve into things that are better uh, over time. Uh, one example is uh, the Braille is very uh, legible. It is uh, what we call grade one Braille, however. It should be a grade two Braille. I think in most labeling situations, grade two just means that uh, it's, it's a contracted form of Braille that doesn't require a letter for letter type of a, a thing. And so they put the grade one there and I would have opted for the grade two. The other thing is the positioning of Braille since you do have to touch it. And if you don't do it right, or if you're limited maybe sometimes by the machinery that, that's there or the ticket, um, the ticket machine and you walk up to it and the button is in a certain place and you put the label in a certain place, well, that's fine, you could look at it, maybe you could push a button, but to read Braille you have to have your hands and your fingertips facing forward. So in my case, the Braille is labeled very low and so I have to either squat down just to get my fingers in position just to do it, okay? So really that's something that nobody who doesn't use Braille uh, uh, would even appreciate or even understand or even be expected to, which is fine. But, um, but I think that in the future, you know, now that, you know, if I pointed out this issue, which I did today, uh, maybe in future uh, evolutions of those machines, uh, the way uh, the labeling would work, the machines could be designed better for people to more universally access the Braille. And that's what it is, it's, it's access. And yes. I, I know we're all looking for the, 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 the time when this is complete, but it's, you know, by segment. But I just imagine that will open up so much more opportunity for people in the disabled community to get to places, whether it's Pearl Ridge or wherever. Yeah, ultimately, you know, the, the, the system is part of the whole, the whole city now. You know, it's, it's a new accommodation to, you know, for all of us to get around. A blind person needs to go through training if they don't already know how to get around. It's their responsibility for any blind person to get around is their responsibility to learn the skills to do that. But on the other hand, if there's no uh, way to communicate because of signage or if there's no, you know, guess which, you know, what this button does if you press it. If there's no uh, audio or uh, tactile label, how are you going to be able to do that yourself. So we're looking for those types of things. We're not asking for things to be designed uh, any differently as far as the approaches. You know, we know how to uh, uh, approach a station. We know how to look for the signs where the entrances are. We get into the facility, but the machines need to be labeled. Uh, the emergency um, devices or the buttons or whatever they have here for their uh, need to be identified and told to us. We just can't scan the area and see that, oh, there's a button on the wall over there. We have to actually know it's there or go over and find it. So these are the things that we look for. But uh, from what I saw today, I, I give them pretty good grades as far as uh, being considerate about what is necessary. All right, well, thank you very much. I appreciate you giving us feedback. Yeah, no problem. And that was Dean, who is blind. We also talked to Kirby, who is wheelchair-bound. The East Honolulu resident may have to wait several years to jump on the train in the urban core, but he was curious to learn firsthand about maneuvering on the rail system. I noticed uh, one of the participants here today who's blind, he was having a little difficulty with the, the vending machine, and so with the Braille located where it was, but it was still useful to him. And so it's unfortunate that we couldn't ride on the rail, but getting into the cars, the train 
and seeing how spacious it was, it makes sense. I wonder too about the timing because the, the one that I was on the other day, we had like 20 seconds to get on and off, so it, it, was, a, it, was, it was fast. Yeah, and so uh, we didn't experience that, although up in this station here, the train stopped for three minutes, so I'm not sure if that's gonna be consistent when uh, it goes into operation, so. Any uh, tips for them about what could be tweaked, you know, how to make it just better for, for folks who are in wheelchairs? I think, and I was telling a couple of the Hitachi people that uh, I think after a few uses, people will figure out uh, what works best for them. And so I think it's just the experience will be the teacher, and so, yeah. Um, realistic, like, like, where would you go? I don't know where you live and where you might want to go if you want to go to Pearl Ridge or you go to a doctor's appointment. I don't know. How does that work? Well, unfortunately, right now, it won't work for me so much as uh, wanting to ride it for pleasure. I live in Waikiki, so, uh, you know, if I want to use it, it'll be to uh, ride out to East Kabale for some reason or just to sightsee on the rail and uh, maybe go out to a restaurant out there and then uh, head back into town. We were hearing from members of the disabled community, Kirby, who's in a wheelchair, and Dean, who's visually impaired. We also met with the director of the rail system, uh, Pat Patrick Pricer, who previously worked with the rail system in Portland, Oregon, before joining the city. And we will likely hear more from him as the system becomes operational. On Friday, the mayor is set to sign papers accepting the first 11 miles of the system from Heart Officials. <laughs> is the conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Telescopes atop Haleakala don't get as much attention as the ones on Mauna Kea, but astronomer Christopher Phillips says there have been some important and exciting observations from the Valley Isle. HPR's Dave Lawrence joins him for your Monday Stargazer. Stargazer Time, our weekly look into the massive and fascinating universe around our tiny planet and also some things we may be able to spot in the sky. As usual, we are welcoming back astronomer Christopher Phillips and thrilled to be doing so. Chris, welcome back. What's happening this week? Hey, Dave. Good to be back. So this week, stargazers, look out for Venus in the western sky after sunset. It is very bright and can be easily seen in the twilight glow. The moon this week will be approaching its first quarter phase, and so conditions for stargazing should be excellent through week's end. Talk about excellent. Apparently, you've got excellent news about some local research being done on the Valley Isle. This is exciting. Oh, yeah. The Daniel K. Inouye Solar Telescope atop Haleakala is the most advanced solar telescope in existence, and most recently it recorded the surface of our nearest star in incredible detail, capturing sunspots and other surface features like never before. DKIST, as it's known for short, is set to be in for a spectacular couple of years as the 11-year solar cycle reaches its peak in July of 2025. 
And this stuff is very important too, right, Chris? Because the activity that happens there can really play a role here. Oh, yeah. As the sun's activity increases over the next couple of years, we can expect to see an increase in solar flares, coronal mass ejections, and other events that can potentially impact satellite communications and maybe even power grids here on the Earth. This is known as space weather, and there is an entire department dedicated to forecasting it. Talk about what's driving the weather and the changes and that sort of thing on the sun itself? Well, the sun is basically a giant nuclear fusion reactor. As you know, it's hot, turbulent, and near the surface, known as the photosphere, everything we see is driven by magnetic fields. Solar flares, light bridges, sunspots are all products of the sun's immense magnetic field, which is the largest entity in the solar system. I love your explanation. As you know, it's hot. (laughs) (laughs) You can't forget that. (laughs) But by studying this stuff, we can actually figure out what kind of weather is coming towards us. Yeah, it's critical for forecasting. Knowing what to expect is half the battle when it comes to protecting our satellites and other equipment from potentially harmful solar outbursts. That's why DKIS and other solar telescopes are vitally important to not only our understanding of the sun, but protecting our global communications network from disruption. And for folks keeping track of Maui's significant contribution to uh, our security, that means two of these facilities are operating there, yeah? Yeah, not only do we have DKIS, but we have PANSTARS, which studies asteroids, which, <laughs> as you can guess, is vitally important for both science and planetary protection. Two obvious areas of concern out there beyond the Earth, the Sun, and the asteroids. And you've got both covered here. It's Christopher Phillips. Thank you so much. You're welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence. We'll catch you next week. And you can find Stargazer at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Ferraro Choi, architects for the Natural Energy Laboratory of Hawaii Authority's Hawaii Gateway Energy Center in Kailua, Kona. FerraroChoi.com. And it's time for your backyard quiz answer. Earlier in the show, we asked, what was the first car to arrive in Hawaii? And now we've got your answer for you. Prior to the arrival of the first automobile in the islands, horses, carriages, and bicycles ruled the dirt roads. Then on October 8th, 1899, people in Honolulu saw something new, a black horseless carriage. They watched Henry Baldwin and Edward Tenney drive around the island in the humming contraption, taking note of the unique sound that was very different from a horse's neigh. During the trip along King and Punahou streets, the vehicle was tried at three different rates of speed, first at four miles an hour, then at eight, and then 14. Much to their surprise, the car worked smoothly and easily and didn't frighten any nearby horses. Baldwin and Tenney were preparing for calamity, but the locomobile, the first car to arrive in Hawaii, is the answer to today's back uh, quiz. It ran as advertised, Hawaii's first gas powered car, the Ford Model T, arrived six years later in 1905. And congrats to our winner, Richard from Maui. You got it right. Got an idea for a quiz for us? Send it to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org.
Well, we're out of time, so that does it for us today. Tomorrow, we expect to hear more about Red Hill as state and federal regulators host meetings with the public. What are your worries about the Red Hill defueling? Or what about the rail system? So close and yet so far. Color Talkback Line. Record something. 808-792-8217. You can find the conversation episodes archived online as well as on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere else you find your podcast. I'm Catherine Cruz. We will be back tomorrow with more of the conversation. Thank you.